Welcome to Up Next. I'm Gabrielle Boucher, millennial author and entrepreneur. Each week, I bring to you next generation leaders and millennial game changers to inspire you to change your world. Let's see what's next. Hey everyone, it is Gabrielle Boucher with Up Next. And today we're talking about a really unique issue that is controversial in nature, but it's not only controversial, but it's incredibly personal to so many of those in the millennial generation. This week, we are looking at the one-year anniversary of Obergefell versus Hodges, which is the landmark Supreme Court decision, which held in a 5-4 decision that the fundamental right to marry to gain, is guaranteed to same-sex couples. Today, I'm joined with Eric Tietzel, who is the founder and principal of Public Square, which exists to bridge the gap between evangelicalism and culture makers who are eager to connect with them. He has served as the director of faith outreach for the Marco Rubio campaign. He was the director of the Manhattan Declaration, and he's really a respected voice in this area. Now, on this show, we talk about millennials and the culture that affects us all of the time. Gay marriage is not only a controversial subject, it's just personal to us. Unlike other generations, we all know someone who's gay. They're, they're our friends, they're our coworkers, they're members of our family. And Eric is here joining us because he's really a strong voice that is able to articulate this issue in a very authentic and a really very real way. So I really just want to jump in and get your perspective as someone who is a millennial and who is a Christian. How how are you able to articulate this issue in such a real way? And why are you so passionate about protecting marriage between a man and a woman? Well, that's a great question, uh, Gabrielle. And to be honest, sometimes I, I wonder if I am able to communicate this issue in an effective way, um, because what we've seen in the last few years is a, um, uh, a real rapid uh, uh, decline in our culture's understanding of, of what marriage is and why it matters. Um, there's a thousand reasons why that has happened, but um, uh, one of them is certainly uh, a failure on the part of uh, leaders uh, in churches uh, and in the Christian community, generally speaking, uh, to make the, the case in a way that, um, uh, that, that everyday Christians can understand and, and then uh, go ahead and communicate themselves to, to their friends and neighbors and colleagues and so forth. Um, and it's hard because it's, it's, uh, it's tricky. It, it, it's not as simple as um, some of the slogans of the LGBT activist community. Uh, Love wins is a compelling message, you have to admit. Um, trying to explain that uh, uh, man and woman are created for one another and, uh, and that only a man and a woman can create new life and that new life is the basis for the state's interest in uh, a personal relationship between a man and a woman takes time. And uh, in our fast-paced culture of distraction, uh, time is a luxury that a lot of people don't afford to, even to important questions of public policy. You're absolutely right in that whether it's, you know, 
one side versus the other, it seems that talking points tend to rule the day. You know, what's communicated in a soundbite or in a tweet versus having a longer conversation. So how are those conversations that you're having where you're able to explain, you know, why why man and woman is best as a as a foundation for for a country how are you able to to really get through particularly to a generation of millennials that have been brought up in in an era where it's you know whatever works for you no judgment you know safe safe spaces on campus how have you been able to do that yeah one of the keys is overcoming the negative associations of uh, of marriage um, as something that is uh, inherently opposed to another person or another idea. Um, marriage is what it is. It, it's a thing. It, it, it has an, an, an essence that is natural and eternal, just like gravity is a thing or water is a thing. And so the trick is to explain to people, look, I just want to talk about what this thing is and, and why that matters. And we can have a conversation about some of the other um, legitimate concerns that you might have regarding um, rights or inclusivity, um, uh, the ways that, that people who don't um, fit into uh, a, a, a true understanding of, of what marriage is still, still of course, have um the, the right to live uh, uh, a life uh, that is uh, abundant and and flourishing in their own conception of whatever that means. So you have to try to move past a lot of junk to get to the core of look, what is this thing and, and why does it matter? And I think if you're able to do that, um, you can you can succeed by saying, look. I, I'm not in the business of, of uh, legislating other people's love lives, but I am in the business of um, making sure that we as a society can flourish. And here's what we know. We know that when, uh, when a kid is raised in a home with their biological mother and father, they are less likely to experience a whole range of negative social outcomes, whether it's a lack of educational attainment or crime or uh, emotional duress or psychological problems or drug abuse and addiction. Uh, they're more likely to gain employment, finish school, um, experience happy marriage themselves, uh, and on and on and on and on. And, and sociologists from across the, the spectrum all agree with that, with that fact. There's really no debate about that reality. Um, strong family structure may not be a silver bullet, but it's it's as close as we've got to solving a lot of the pain that our fellow citizens are experiencing. And so it's a good public policy to try to promote um, what many of us who understand marriage consider it, it to be, which is the, the foundation of human society. And as I said, just because you understand that doesn't mean that you can't also be concerned with people who choose to live a, a different way. Um, and that's a really complicated thing too that we can hash into. But just as one example, before Obergefell, there was the Windsor decision. And Windsor threw out the federal law on marriage, the Defense of Marriage Act. At, at the core of the Windsor case was a tax dispute. 
Uh, two women were married according to the laws of the state of New York. And when one of them died, uh, the one that was left behind was forced to pay um, taxes on the money that she received as, a, as an inheritance um, that she wouldn't have had to pay if her marriage was, was regarded as legal by the federal government. Um, my solution to that problem is not to undermine uh, a historical, anthropological understanding of the meaning of marriage. It's to get rid of the death tax, right? So that's just one example of ways that we can try to uh, help everyone uh, get along, so to speak. So you're talking about not just creating exceptions for certain groups. You're talking about reforming a much larger system, which I think we would all agree is in desperate need of reform as it is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Because so often the the argument on in support of gay marriage has been the legal side of things. It's been, you know, whether one person can visit the other person in the hospital or it has been, you know, what do you do when the other is dis- other is, is deceased? And so it's more of the, uh, how do you have those types of conversations about the real practical side of what marriage is? And it's a definitions issue, right? Which I think as, as a generation, we have a hard time, hard time explaining what is and what isn't truth. And when it comes to, you know, whether it's what we believe in, in God, whether it's what we believe about marriage, it's having a hard time being able to really conceptualize something that's quite abstract. Because as a society, and I'm sure that you, you've you seen this as you've had these conversations, we, we don't really have the platforms to have abstract conversations where you know, with your experience working with a faith community, that's really where a great venue would be, would be the church, would be, you know, places of worship within our communities where so oftentimes Christian leaders aren't willing to have those conversations. And I'd love to hear from your point of view why you think that is and how we can equip leaders, particularly in the faith community, but really leaders of influence throughout to be able to have conversations that are compassionate, but also to our authentic. Yeah. Well, why we're not able to have um, abstract conversations anymore is a, uh, a big, <laughs> complicated question. Um, I, I would uh, uh, refer your listeners to um, maybe the, the one book that has influenced me more than any other in the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years um, and that's uh, by Neil Postman uh, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he was writing in the early 1980s about the ways in which um, technology have fundamentally altered uh, our understanding of, of life in, in virtually every sector. And he walks through the media and politics and education and just outlines how, how it used to be a certain way and how uh, technology has um, has changed our, 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 not just our experience with those things, but really the way that we um, understand uh, one another and the world in, in which we live. And he's writing again like, like 30 years ago before the explosion that has occurred uh, in the time since. It's, a, it's really a prophetic book from someone who, um, uh, to my knowledge, uh, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a Christian, wasn't tapped into those sources of truth, but nevertheless put his finger on something really, really important. The brass tax issue is what do we do about that 
now. And I think it, it's un- incumbent on leaders in the Christian community to um, gird up their loins and, and do the hard work. Um, you got to recognize where we're at. You're not just going to change things by demanding that they that they change or, or by refusing to uh, to compromise. I think that one of the cool things that we've seen in the last few years is advocates of marriage really working hard to nail down the the elevator speech, so to speak, to the extent that it is possible, focusing on um, on the needs of children, for instance, and and ra- raising those to the fore, while also um, uh, uh, being willing to give to give ground and to say, you know, what, in a pluralistic society, um, in a federalist system. Maybe maybe it is okay if we allow uh, lo- local forms of government, especially, to determine um, certain policies for for the members of their community, and and that's okay. Uh, uh, and maybe there are some instances where even if we disagree with your lifestyle, we have to acknowledge that you're a citizen, um, you're, you're worthy of the protection of our laws, and and this really is an issue of unfairness. I don't know exactly where we draw those lines, but there's been in my mind a willingness to hash it out. And, um, and of course, in our time, we also have to be talking about religious liberty. And this, once again, does provide an opportunity to advocates of marriage and traditional understandings of the nature of human sexuality to be on the side of, of liberalism in its truest sense of, of, of tolerance, uh, of freedom. Uh, because what we want is for everyone to have the right to live in light of, of their um fundamental uh, beliefs and values and opinions, no matter what they are. And the belief that we're all better off when we compete in the public square, rub shoulders with one another, teach and learn from one another, and uh, and go about our lives in in that complex web of, of difference. I think that's really well said. I was discussing with with a friend of mine about this very, very same issue. And we were wine tasting in California, which is, you know, where all great conversations come from, right? And uh, this issue came up and, and he made a profound point where he said, you know, I really think that there'd be something powerful that would happen if the church were to come out and to apologize earnestly for how we've been treating the gay community when it comes to whether it's been in the path of our local community, whether it's been, you know, many of the thought leaders who haven't wanted to wanted to even go after this issue, is it's being humble enough in who we are, realizing that many of us have not been able to articulate it in a way that is loving and that is compassionate. Now you had you had brought up this idea of having an elevator pitch. And so because you did I'm interested to hear yours or how you would advise someone. So say, you know, one of our listeners is sitting in a bar and the conversation comes up about gay marriage. How do you or how would you inform them how to communicate their beliefs that they think marriage should be between a man and a woman? Yeah. Um, So specifically, we're talking about uh, as a matter of public policy, because I think you have to have a different conversation if um, if you are um, a Christian uh, hoping first and foremost to give a, a biblical defense of, of what marriage is. They're, those aren't completely diametrically opposed conversations, but I think your strategy is going to be a little bit different. So if you're talking to someone about what marriage policy should be in the United States, I usually start with what is the government's interest in your love life? And most people's knee-jerk reaction to that is to say, not much, if any. And I say, that's exactly right. I'm not interested in, in legislating your love life. But 
Um, here's what we know. Um, when a man and a woman come together, as only a man and a woman can, they tend to create new life. And the state has an interest in that for many reasons, because uh, we need new citizens to replace the old ones, uh, just brass tacks, uh, but also because um, uh, we need to be able to answer questions like who, who inherits that when that other person dies or who is responsible for the welfare of that child from this age to that age. Those are essential legal questions that aren't going away, and the state needs an answer to them. Um, defining marriage is between a man and a woman because only a man and a woman can create new life is actually the least restrictive way uh, that the state can, can, uh, can play the role that it ne necessarily has to play with regard to the welfare of kids um, while allowing other citizens to, um, to live and, and experience romance with one another uh, free from government constraint. There's been many debates going back and forth of whether or not any sort of marriage contract should be regulated by the state, or do we move everyone to a strict contract and those within the faith community can call it a marriage and those who don't ascribe to any particular faith can call it something different as a definitions or really more of as a word choice? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm really not all that interested in, in, in playing word games with, uh, with timeless truths. I think um, it's important that our laws reflect reality and where they reflect reality and are consistent with what we know to be true, we can expect them to be good laws and where they don't, we can expect uh, bad things to result. And I think what we've seen, for example, with uh, divorce law or the lessening of penalties for adultery or a whole host of other ways in which we've sort of chipped away at a fundamental understanding of, of the nature of man and woman and of parenthood and, and of marriage. Uh, we've seen destruction. We've seen pain and chaos. Um, so uh, I think that uh, uh, just simply uh, changing the, the, the rhetoric is, is not really going to help um, in any way, um, we need to have we need to have laws that that reflect reality. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that you can't do other things, other kinds of legislation or regulation or whatever it is to account for some of the very legitimate questions that you raised earlier, like hospital visitation rights. Let's do something about that, um, but without undermining um, marriage. In that same in that same lane, before we really got to where we were with. Uh, with the Supreme Court decision, which we'll talk more about in a moment, were the were there on either a state or a national level to your understanding those types of laws that were being proposed that would have dealt with some of the very real and practical challenges that homosexual couples deal with? Sure, there were. Um, absolutely. And, if, and I mentioned, you know, like eliminating the death tax earlier. That's something that conservatives have been in favor of for a long, long time. Not not only because of, of this, but um, but nevertheless. Um, but and this raises a really interesting uh, dynamic here that I think has to be grappled with, which is that the movement for 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 same sex marriage is about some of these brass tax considerations, especially for your everyday person who really just wants to be able to, to live their life. Um, but, it's, but it's also about something else, especially for some of the um, corporate, uh, more, more activist lobbying organizations who, who work on this issue. There is a broader agenda here. And same-sex marriage is one major plank in a broader push to really undermine um, 
the basics, our basic understanding of, of the nature of a, of a person and, and certainly of, of our understanding of, of sexuality as, as a dimension of, of human identity. Um, and we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't ignore that reality and pretend like if we had, if we had just come up with creative policy solutions to, to make life um, fairer and easier for people who, who by definition can't experience marriage, all of this would have gone away because there is still that other, that other piece. Very interesting point. So back to the one year anniversary that we're just coming up upon with Obergefell, it's been one year. What has really changed in the everyday American's life from one year ago to today? And what does the future of this marriage movement look like in America? Well, that's a great question. I, I think that um, I'd answer it a few different ways. Um, you know, the the parade of horribles uh, that uh, um, unfortunately um, the marriage movement was was accused of of, of uh, fear mongering with um, probably hasn't presented itself to to the majority of Americans. They woke up the day after the Supreme Court ruling, and life around them probably didn't look a whole lot different than it did before. But it was never the case that we were arguing overnight. You know, mass calamity would would ensue. Um, that's not how civilizations work. That's not how culture works. Certainly not with with 350 million citizens spread across uh, thousands of square miles, right? Um, but here's what we know: over the last few decades, uh, the fertility rate in America has continued to decline to the point that we are no longer having a sufficient number of children to replace generations as they are as they are passing away. That has real consequences economically, socially, for the world in, in which we live. Um, uh, we know that um, uh, more and more children uh, are being born in homes without parents who are wed and, and in many cases without a father. We know that divorce rates are still high. So you have to take a look at the macro and ask yourself the question, how did this decision contribute to uh, an ever-growing uh, decimation in uh, the foundation of human civilization that can only really be counted in the long term? Now, it's also true, though, that um, same-sex marriage doesn't exist in a vacuum. It contributes to a public understanding of, of sexuality and of society and, uh, and other issues, influences other issues related to that too, foremost among them being religious liberty. And we have seen um, a drastic and fast move uh, to undermine the ability of the right of um, people of every different faith uh, to live out their faith in the public square. We've seen uh, the proprietors of bakeries and, 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 and photographers and uh, 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 other wedding vendors and T-shirt makers uh, be forced to, to close their doors um, because they politely said, I can't, I can't use my creative abilities to, to uh, affirm something that, that I don't agree with. Um, we've seen uh, in California right now um, faith-based colleges and universities in California are, are looking at um, a piece of legislation that would force them to, to close their doors if passed by the California state legislature because it would say that you may no longer hire employees um, based on uh, their adherence to uh, the belief, the biblical belief, that marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, and we could go on and on and on about this. That's not a direct 
um, result of the decision in Obergefell, but unquestionably Obergefell um, uh, affirms sort of a, a societal understanding of what is good and what is not good that has contributed to um, the rise of, of these threats undermining religious freedom. Yeah, great, great point. And, and that piece of legislation going on in, in California, SB 1146, I'm, I'm from that, from that state. And I went to Christian University, actually, in, in California, we've had those conversations with leadership. And it is, it is, I mean, that's a broader conversation of what does that look like when, you know, when respecting one group, and, you know, respecting kind of in quotes here means that you're disrespecting others. You know, where does that you know, classical liberal approach to to tolerance really come in where it's not elevating one over the other. And I have this conversation quite often with many of my peers, in fact, about this concept between uh, between fairness and justice. And I think as a generation, we've been pre-programmed to think this isn't fair or what should be fair without realizing that fairness is so oftentimes a situation and when justice is really the principle so how are we getting back to a society, a society that's run by justice rather than fairness, which so oftentimes can just be based off of perspective? So we're wrapping up here towards the end of our time. And Eric, I am so thrilled that you were able to spend time with us to be able to really open up a different level of conversation to say that the book is not closed and how do you equip people who are young and who have uh, differing views than the majority of their generation and, and how do we communicate what we think and what we believe in a way that's respectful and that's compassionate. At the end of all of my broadcasts, I love to ask the same question to all of my guests. So we've been having a very serious conversation here. So we might switch gears just a little bit. But my final question for all of my guests here on the show is, so if the 12-year-old version of you were to meet you now, Eric, and see what you do every day, what would he think about what you're doing? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think a 12-year-old me would be disappointed that I'm uh, not a professional basketball player. Um, although 12-year-old me probably should have seen that coming um, uh, even then. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was always, uh, that said, I really was always interested in, in policy and politics. And, um, and even as a kid, I, I took my faith pretty seriously. Um, even if I didn't always live it out very well. Um, so I think that 12-year-old me would be pretty, pretty excited uh, that uh, uh, I was working kind of right at the nexus of, of faith and, and politics. And he'd definitely be excited that I'm going to the Royals game tonight. Well, I'm pretty excited about that for you, too. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us, Eric. And I just want to recognize you for, uh, for your your perseverance and your willingness to be such a strong voice and such a strong advocate in the face of what I can only imagine would be a lot of controversy and then oftentimes some challenges, but you, you handle it with so much grace and so much uh, compassion. And so I really just respect the work that you're doing and I'm very excited that you were able to come on and talk with me and our listeners. Well, thank you. You know what? We're not called to win. We're called to be obedient. And uh, uh, so that's why try to do. And you do too. So thanks for the opportunity and we'll see you around. Absolutely.